1: I didn't no know
2: butter. that. You like no. no. So I'm I sure can't. No I, peanut peanut really,
3: butter, I don't really like peanut in, butter, you know. so I've no, not, not linked No, butter. Over it. it is butter. It's like peanut
2: butter. It's butter made out it's of peanuts. Butter
3: made out of peanuts. John, did you know that?
2: Uh... It, it, should really hi- it should really be it hi- should really be hyphenated. I mean, now. it's like, like it's not, it's peanut butter. The whole butter. point about it is there's no dairy in it. That's why people do. That's the whole point we're about it. That's
1: not the whole point about well,
2: it. Well, it's one of the points. It's one of about the points is that. Christ.
3: But no, my 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 it's peanut butter is not pedant butter.
2: Pedant <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, butter. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Off pat. Hello and welcome to Backlisted. Once again, we're gathered around the kitchen table of our sponsors, Unbound a publisher who brings together authors and readers to create great books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. Uh, And I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Uh, Hello, welcome to Backlisted, everybody. Uh, This is a podcast where we attempt to give new life to old books. We're joined, as ever, by the uh, author and... Labour leadership candidate, Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> Hello, Andy. And Actually, we'll find out whether he's won or not. But I, would vote for, I would vote for Matthew <laughs> in preference to any other candidate. <laughs> True. And um, we're also joined by Erica Wagner.
3: Hey. Hello. Very pleased to be here.
2: Uh, Erica is uh, obviously an author and critic, but she's also credited with uh, on her website of being the creator of the world's finest egg-free chocolate mousse. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> I'm make, a
3: woman of many parts, and makes
2: her, make, makes her own peanut butter, which is something that has astonished uh, all of us around uh, the table today. But most of all, Matthew Clayton. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, th- we are here. Uh, we will. G- <clears throat> we are here to discuss uh, the animal family by a American poet, critic, uh, 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 and author called Andy. Well, now. <laughs> I would say uh, Randall yesterday. Jarrell. Right. Until yesterday, I was wandering around saying Randall Jarrell. Have you heard of Randall Jarrell? I do like Randall Jarrell. But then I was listening to a, a clip of something that we're going to hear a bit later on, and Mr. Jarrell is announced in 1964 as Randall Jarrell. Right. So there is strong evidence <laughs> that his but name... Not but then um, Erica was saying maybe but not. But
3: not incontrovertible evidence, no. you see, because mm. I, being such a polite... Person um, never like to correct people when they introduce me as Erica Wagner. I mean, I think um, it sounds kind of elegant too, yep. but I never say it. So perhaps, Mister, whoever he was, Jarrell, 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 was being polite to the ninety-second. Why we right. don't know.
2: It's, it's and a, yet, and yet, what I know of Mister. The, he, <laughs> he wasn't was
3: inclined to be polite. It's true. So. <laughs> it's funny,
2: isn't it? It's very English, because we say Leonard Nimoy, but they definitely say yeah. Leonard Nimoy uh, in a And, and also, while we're used. here, this, there are illustrations in the animal family by Sendak, who in the UK we call Maurice Sendak. That is, of course, incorrect. It's Maurice Sendak. Um, <laughs> so this is going to be quite the, quite the episode for pronunciation, <laughs> everyone. Um, but before we get on to uh, the animal family by those people, um, John, what have you been reading this week? Okay, I have been reading a book that was published in 1947 um, uh, called Exmoor Village. Um, it is uh, one of the uh, strange uh, efflorescences from that remarkable, that remarkable thing uh, founded by Humphrey Jennings and Charles Madge and uh, Tom Harrison, Mass Observation. And this is—it's just a remarkable book. I declare an interest. One of our, one of our unbound um, authors, makers, creators, Wolfgang Wild, who is uh, the Retronaut, uh, who curates an extraordinary photographic uh, website uh, now hosted on Mashable, um, introduced this book to me last week, and Matthew and we were both blown away by it. Um, I l- like books as you know about kind of rural life because I live in a village, uh, but this is the i think maybe the most remarkable um, book on a, a village i've 've seen it's, its mass observation goes to the country, so it is um, it is basically lots and lots of um, it's illustrated, I'll, I'll go on to the illustrations in a moment, but it's lots of interviews with villagers mm-hmm. about all aspects of their daily lives. There are lists of the newspapers that they take. There's an amazing appendix where they, they do bookshelves, what, what was found on the bookshelves. It, there are some fabulous, I'll read a couple of very short extracts of, the, of daily routines. But it's also this got really the... remarkable, two really remarkable visual aspects, really remarkable colour photographs. I mean, for 1947, the colour reproduction is—it's um, almost Vermeer-like in some. And the, of...
1: and the images are taken by John Hind, who was the UK's most famous postcard photographer, and I guess a kind of Martin Parr of his day, really. Yeah, and and the
2: village f- is called Luckham. Luckham, right? and it's in yeah. Exmoor, and yep. it's—it's—I uh, it's, uh, think now still sort of half-owned by the National Trust. But there is also visually, as well as the um, as well as the photographs. This remarkable isotope isotope institute set of graphics in the back, a village distance chart um, showing <laughs> how, uh, how far <laughs> they <laughs> were. I mean, and, and then a I brilliant and a brilliant a brilliant thing, a panorama <laughs> showing the village and sea level, um, <coughs> showing where all the gardens in the village, and then. Um, a a, a wonderful plan of a typical cottage in Luckham and how it's all put together. Did um, did um,
3: Mass Observation, did they do this with other
2: villages? Well, it's very interesting because it says here, it's volume one in a series called British Ways of Life. Mm. So you think, oh, I bet there's hundreds. There are only two that were ever published, I think. Um, I could be corrected on that. The second was British Circus Life, which seems like a pretty weird. Wow. I'm, I'm so, by Lady I'm Eleanor so, Smith? By Lady Eleanor Smith, and, and uh, edited by W.J. Turner. W.J. Turner was known as a music critic. Wow. The whole, it's a mysterious Well, i it's a I mysterious like it. run, product. Run, I, a, don't walk to your computers, <laughs> listeners, to I see think what copies are left. Well, I think it is because after we um, scalp
0: the lot. <laughs>
1: I think it's a spin-off from the Britain in Pictures series. Well, so I, Collins did that Britain in Pictures series, yeah, which was bolstering it, the nation... Sure, the it, I World think War. there's a lot about... Same format.
2: There is a sort of... Uh, I mean, I've, I've read around the book. I mean, there's an interesting thing that happened is that in 1988, they went back to Luckham using this book and made a sh- short series of documentaries. But um, the whole mass observation thing was remarkable. It was, it was essentially a bunch of Oxford and Cambridge-educated young men... <laughs> Being sent into uh, into sort of um, yeah into uh, neighbourhoods, <laughs> working class neighbourhoods. <laughs> to, bor- to borrow the to borrow a phrase from the comedian Stuart Lee, it's a well-meaning starzy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, uh, so Stephen <laughs> uh, it's sort of it's sort of you know spies in tank tops going around taking notes about people on Xbox, I mean, famously, it? famously, that William Empson was a the, the, the great literary critic. Um, uh, uses of pastoral um was a, was one of them. But there's a fabulous thing That I would
3: think. be a little bit alarming, wouldn't it, if William Empson...
2: Would yeah, I mean, can you imagine... imagine wearing that beard. I That's know. Right. <laughs> but here's, here's, and there was a, there were a lot of I mean I know that it was very controversial in Luckham. There were some yeah. people who talked to them, the, and there were others who refused flatly but to talk Also, the villagers, when the book was published, I was reading this. Yeah. When you tell me you've been reading it, John, apparently, when the when the book was published, many of the villagers were very upset, upset at the invasion of their privacy. Well, I'll tell you why in a moment, because I'll read you a couple of little choice bits. But I thought, just on the mass observation, um, this is a great quote about how they were how they were regarded. We were called. This is Spender. Uh, Stephen. We were called Spies, Priors, Mass Eavesdroppers, Nosy Parkers, Peeping Toms, Lopers, Snoopers, Envelope Steeners, Keyhole Artists, Sex Maniacs, Sissies and Society Playboys. It doesn't (laughs) sound like a brilliant... You know, because it's weird. We have such a positive view now of mass observation, and it was one of these remarkable things, a bit like Pevsner or the Ordnance Survey. Aren't we clever? But at the time, it was massively controversial, because the English...
0: Keyhole Artists.
2: Keyhole Artists is great, isn't it? That
3: sounds like A Hoxton band.
2: Yeah, it does, does. doesn't it? Keyhole. Anyway, uh, there are some bits of there are some fabulous bits of dialogue. I mean, it is quite. uh, I mean, it's. I love it. It is quite an odd book. It's a brilliantly um, accurate portrait. I mean, there are there are some fabulous uh, pictures of people in, but it's it's, there are some great bits of dialogue as well. I I mean, it's. it's I went to the University of Sussex, and uh, the Mass Observation Archive was, and I think still is held at Sussex. um, Isn't it near you, Matthew? Yeah. So, and um, everyone I knew was always doing, you know, uh, essays towards their degrees based on the mass observation archive because it was, you know, just there and you could go in and root around in it. It's, it's an amazing thing. thing. It's a mm. whole
1: load of archive boxes, and you go in there, and there's all these amazing notebooks with people's, you know, the town square in Bolton Saturday. Midday, there were eighty men wearing brown shoes and fifteen wearing black shoes, and all sorts of things like that. It's yeah. extraordinary.
2: So I'm just going to give you a flavour. This is this is uh, in the daily routine <laughs> bit of the book, um, and, and concerns a couple called the Thames. Uh, I think Mr Tame is a. I'm not quite sure what Mr Tame does now. I think he's a. I think he's a Carter. Anyway, Mr Tame. Mrs Tame leaves Witchhanger about 3.30 and walks slowly back to Porch Cottage, calling frequently at the Miss Palmer's house for a gossip. On arriving home, she may make a cup of tea, but has no real meal until her husband returns between 6 and 6.30pm. Her afternoon is taken up with washing, ironing, housework, in fact, whatever needs doing, and, of course, the preparation and cooking of the evening meal. After the meal comes washing up and the cutting of sandwiches for Mr Tame to take to work the following day, he likes cheese, supplemented by one or two of his wife's jam jam tarts or cakes. For Mrs Tame is an excellent cook, though she professes to absolutely hate it. <laughs> by the time she's cleared away and packed up sandwiches ready for the next day, it is getting on well into the evening, and she either goes out to watch her husband gardening and to have a chat with him, goes round to Mrs Prescott to have a talk, invariably prefacing her remarks with, now, what do you think? I, I will I will say here and now, I will pledge money for both the republication of this book and you, John, to do the audio book. Yes. <laughs> well, that's very sweet. But it is full... Honestly, it is remarkable. It's remarkable because the information in it is remarkable, but it's also remarkable because you think, what is this? It's really quite odd. It is quite odd. It's quite... Yeah. There's a strange... Look at this, Mister Clark of Westlockham Farm. We think he Gosh, is obviously he's, a bit he, he, he's the uh, he's the, the handsome the handsome yeah. one in the village. He, he it doesn't look like a cad necessarily, but uh, there's a local thatcher repairing pegs. Um, anyway, <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> I had, his, I had, his descendants, and then are and then the slightly man. crazy kind of mad mo- modernist uh, kind of charts at the back. I mean, there is something very very. When you look at you... this. Yeah, I know. What the, hanging on the dresser? What shows.
3: they have in their houses. A typical a typical Luckham luk- 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 interior. interior.
2: It's, it's like brown linoleum with very small red and brown patterns. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd. <laughs> you, you would be following in the footsteps of when they made the films in 87, 88. They had eight, readings yeah. by actors, but the additional commentary, the readings from the book were done by Daniel Farson. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's, you, you're in a, a rich heritage of... Dissolute <laughs> men. <laughs> there, John. We knew that. Um, I mean, there is a there is a kind of a, a theory that, that these books were, were a form of post war propaganda, sort of pro- pro- promulgating the idea of of, 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 of um, rural life as as being simple and and, and, and and to be aspired towards. But actually, they because it was mass observation that there's, there's so much weird, strange. You know, not quite Wicker Man, but there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff when you read this book cumulatively. You think, what a really odd place Luckham sounded. And my experience of villages is they are they do tend to be odd. And what is not said, obviously, yeah. is, as is important.
3: But also, any place described in that detail
2: is going to be <coughs> odd. If
3: you're yeah. describe yeah. your evening routine like that, mm. you would mm. think, oh, must be something else.
2: Yeah. yeah, going yeah, on yeah.
1: there. That herbal tea, Andy, always have before bed, for instance.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How did you know that? It's just the, 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 the dialogue as well. Really Back comes weird. Mr Williams and again shouts something as he passes. They watch the goat. Jimmy picks up a rabbit gin and begins fiddling with it. He reads the trademark, lie low. Tony, aye, and they do lie low till the rabbit do tread on them. <laughs> Mr Shopland, they'd be good traps. No then, Jimmy, it is the wrong way to hold them. Aye, this be the right way. He demonstrates. Tony goes over to the goat and fondles it. He cuts a, he cuts a branch from a bush and comes back whistling and whittling. He shapes it like the rest of the steak, selects an old steak to throw away and replaces it with the new one. I mean... It's almost Beckett, isn't it? What, I, what, I what's think, going on, John?
3: John, I think that's enough goat fondling, really.
2: <laughs> well, you more say goats, that more animal <laughs> yeah, fondling to come. Yes, you said that. But Andy, 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 <laughs> so, what have you been reading? Talking <laughs> ah, of fasting, okay. talking of yes. Um, so I've been reading um, the 1970 book *Revolt in Style* by George Melly, the great late. Amazing, George Melly, And the reason that I've been reading *Revolt to Style, uh, a book about the pop arts in Britain in the 1960s, is I was very uh, kindly asked by um, some academics from UEA and the University of York uh, to go and talk at a day-long symposium about... Uh, The popular culture of the 1960s and what the popular culture of the 1960s means now, 50 years later, here in the 21st century. And so I thought, well, um, I'm going to. I I was delighted to be asked. I was delighted to be asked to go and talk about British film of the 1960s, which is a great enthusiasm of mine. And um, I thought, well, I just want to get in the mood. I've never actually read Revolt into Style, though I've had it sitting on the shelf for years. So I, I thought, okay, well, I'll, 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 I'll bundle through it before I go to the uh, symposium. And I was totally blown away by it. I, I cannot recall reading something that has entertained me page to page so much for such a long time. Uh, because... Here's the thing, it's written by George Melly, okay. so He's <laughs> a master pro stylist, isn't he? I, I've got, I'm going to read a couple of bits master here. And stylist. Then master stylist, I can't believe I said he Yes, he is. <laughs> he, 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 in the, introduc- the introduction is written in December 1966, and he's obviously got an eye on 1970, four years ahead. And he's thinking to himself, I'm living in the middle of a decade which is going to require a statement as soon as it's over... <laughs> And I'm the guy to deliver I'm the guy, it. yeah. You know, it, but which you... So he's, so he's already been thinking about this. And he is... He, he, he sets the book up as a response to The Uses of Literacy by Richard Hoggart. Now, I read The Uses of Literacy by Richard Hoggart last year. Very important book about popular culture in Britain rather than pop culture in Britain. And Melly is very keen to make the difference. And when I read the use of literacy last year, I thought, well, this is quite good. But equally, it's written in the late 50s, yeah. and Richard Hoggart doesn't know what's just around the corner, and what's just around the corner is the Beatles, who he must have hated for ruining yes, everything. He's closer but, to mass observation. Yes, his but, he, but, of, you know, but he has a very clear sense that popular culture is something that is not imposed from above, that is created by working-class communities, that is under threat from American pop artists trying to sell junk to the working classes therefore as I say the Beatles are coming the Beatles are coming that's going to ruin everything because they are of course working class people making their own culture which sweeps the world so here's George Melly writing about the use of literacy in December 1966 and this made me laugh out loud At about the time that rock and roll had begun to attract some attention, Richard Hoggart was correcting the proofs of the uses of literacy, that warm, perceptive, occasionally sentimental monument to the working class culture of his youth. Throughout the book, Professor Hoggart expressed his concern at the way things were going. (laughs) (laughs) He saw the old simple-minded but honest standards on which popular culture was based threatened by cynical forces bent on manipulation for profit. Towards the end of the book, he becomes more and more agitated, running round his subject like a sheepdog who senses some danger to his flock but isn't sure what it is or where it will come from. (laughs) He growls now at the increasing sophistication of working-class magazines, now at the sex and violence paperbacks of the period. It was natural that he shouldn't have realised that the quarter from which the danger was to come was a Soho coffee bar where an ex-merchant Navy steward called Tommy Hicks had begun to arouse considerable, if as yet local, enthusiasm by imitating Elvis Presley. And Tommy Hicks was? Tommy Tommy Steele. Tommy Steele. And this is a thing that um, uh, Colin McInnes, who we did a few weeks ago in relation to Absolute Beginners, he wrote wrote a brilliant essay in England Half English about the effect of Tommy Steele. Tommy Steele, who for a period of literally weeks was considered the greatest threat (laughs) to moral life. Anyway, so going back to Revolting to Style, every single page of this book, having set himself up almost as not anti-academic, but but non-academic, he replaces the tiresome rigour of academia with one incredible, funny, brilliant... Statement after another. So stylish, as you would expect from George Melly, And he's got a little description here of the Rolling Stones. I think this is the most brilliant. This is so brilliant. The Stones. To start with, they were almost grotesquely derivative. Blues shouters from the Thames Valley cotton fields. <laughs> <laughs> And Jagger's early success was based almost entirely on his sexual charisma. I write Jagger's charisma rather than the Stones' charisma because without Jagger, I don't believe the Stones would have ever meant much. Brian Jones was certainly pretty. Keith Richards, sinister. Watts, Aztec. (laughs) Bill Wyman, a hole in the air. (laughs) Bill Wyman, a hole in the air. St- I, mean, I mean, I'm sorry, Bill Wyman, but you know that's he, hard to beat, isn't it? He is. He is so remarkable, though, Melly. I mean, I, you know, it, I think we were you saying that Rumbum and Concertina is is my favourite all time memoir. I it's think it's it's movie. just so it's so funny page to page. I read it when I was about 18 for the first time. It was one of those books you find in a ho- in a holiday cottage, and you think, <laughs> yeah. I wonder what this is, and then it turned out to be brilliant. I mean, his time in the I don't know. I've, never read, I've never read any of his memoirs. It totally made you know, me want Do you to know where
1: him. the Run, Bum and Constantino comes from? No, no, tell me. So it is uh, on land, it's all wine, women and song. Yeah. On sea, <laughs> it's all Run, Bum and <laughs> Constantina. <laughs> is <Isn't that> brilliant? <laughs> oh, I, I well, just... I once
2: saw George when really he performed. With, with John Chilton's feet one? Yeah, in a hat mm. and a rather amazing pink dress. I I, I saw him. I mean, he's an, he was an amazing performer, wasn't he? Just brilliant. We've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism. Do you think we should um, move effortlessly into Randall Jarrell now? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, now we, um, we have Erica here. What's the best way into it, given that we've, uh, we've gone from fondling goats in Exmoor to Bill Wyman as a hole I, in the air? I'm going to read the very short blurb on the back of the book. Right. and then I'm going to ask Erica to tell us a bit about when the she, very when, book, when she first say. encountered it, I think. So it's called uh, The Animal Family by Randall Jarrell, decorations by Maurice Sendak, and here's what it says on the back cover. And We should say this is, and this, well, this is all up for debate, everybody, this is, in theory at least, a children's book. We haven't done a children's book before on backlist, it. In it? The- in theory at least. Okay, so here's the blurb. This is the story of how, one by one, A man found himself a family. Almost nowhere in fiction is there a stranger, dearer, or funnier family. And the life that the members of the animal family lived together, there in the wilderness beside the sea, is as extraordinary and as enchanting as the family itself. So that's the blurb. And then there is a quote from uh, Mary Poppins' author, P.L. Travers. And she says... Occasionally, very rarely, like the spirit of delight, comes a book that is not so much a book as a kind of visitation. I had not known that I was waiting for the animal family, but when it came, it was as though I had long been expecting it. That's quite the blurb.
3: That is quite the blurb. And um, it's interesting because I think when you're a young reader, you don't know about book blurbs even if they exist on the copy of the book that you have. Well, I certainly didn't know to read them. I can't remember reading any blurbs until I was very much a grown-up, so-called. So Um, so I suppose I found this book, I guess, in my school library. Mm -hmm. I was at my school from the age of about five. I'm guessing I found this book maybe when I was seven or eight Um, because it's one of those books that I can't remember not knowing about. Um, And now, when I read P.L. Travers' uh, description of her experience of the book, I would say that that absolutely Mm. chimes with mine, Mm. in that there was something in me that was waiting for a book like this And when I look back now and I think about uh, all the things that I remain interested in and more than interested that cause me to exist, the Mm. the kind of stories I care about most, uh, folklore, fairy tales, ballads, what I think are the truest and oldest human stories... This book certainly played a part in my coming to see the shape of that. Um, <clears throat> so it's a book. It is. It's about um, uh, It's about a hunter who lives by the sea, and he's by himself. Um, and then one day he hears singing off in the distance that sounds strange to him, and he, he goes down to the sea. And as soon as his presence is felt, the singing disappears and he hears a splash, but he keeps going back. He's a hunter, so he's very patient. He knows how to wait for things. And it soon becomes apparent that this is a mermaid. And eventually the mermaid comes up out of the sea and they begin to make this extraordinary family. And one of the things that the book has in common with folklore and fairy tale is there's no explanation. Mm. All of this just happens in a way that's so clean and so clear that there's simply no space in this story to think wh- how? <laughs> how? Yeah. How yeah. does she walk. walk? How does she? breathe. How is it safe to have a bear come and live with you? <laughs> Actually, one of the things that, that happens in this story, I only realized returning to it with the bear, a bear becomes kind of their child. The bear cub comes into their house via a scene that's very similar to what happens in the Revenant*.
2: I thought just that, and felt and felt bad for thinking so.
3: With with really different results, you <laughs> yeah, know.
2: Really different. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to say, <laughs> of all the books I've ever read, this is the furthest from the replica. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yet, American, oddly
3: true. similar. Yeah, so, there is
2: definitely an um, element. <clears throat> Quality. I was interested in what you were saying about the things that in the in the story it's one of the story' is wonderful, okay, so that's the first thing I'd, I'd never heard of it it's illustrated by Sendak. My wife is a great Sendak fan, and I said to her, "Do you know this book?" And she said, at first she said no and then she said, "Wait a minute, I think I've got another book by um, Jirrell called Fly by Night, which I have here um, because of the Sendak illustrations but i I'd never i'd never heard of it. Um, and one of the things that was really struck me about it is the um, dreamlike nature of it. And I've been doing my uh, my research and my reading about Jarrell, and he, he dreams were a, an incredibly important thing for him in his poetry and in his criticism and in how he judged a short story or a poem, and indeed how he wrote this book. And he he won the. National Book Award in 1960 for his fourth collection of poetry, which is called The Woman at the Washington Zoo. And in his acceptance speech, he finishes his acceptance speech by saying, Poetry, art, these two are occupations of a sort, and I do not recommend them to you any more than I recommend to you that tonight you go home to bed and go to sleep and dream. You know, he for him, there's a real brilliant zone of creativity and dreaming and unshackling the, the 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 mind so that it can wander where it wants to. And some of the things about the animal family are you can see that as a as a fascinatingly as an idea worked through in the aesthetic of the book. It's, it's interesting that where there are where I mean, the, to to some extent, the the book is an, an idyll. Um, the hunter finds. Yeah. A mermaid. Together, they find their first sort of member of the family, which is a bear cub, which grows um, with hilarious consequences to a full-sized bear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then a lynx, and then finally a, a baby boy. But insofar as that there is any kind of injection of, of kind of troublesomeness into the uh, into the idol, it's through dreams. You know, the, the, the hunter has dreams that that, that trouble yeah, yeah, yeah. That trouble him. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, and he I,
3: also has memories. memories. There's there's yeah, yeah, the yeah. absence of his of his own family, which is of his yeah. really yeah. Important. Of his parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which, although he's presented as content,
2: yeah, there are, you're
3: also aware that there's something yeah, gnawing
2: away that's not quite right. Erica, have you have you got something that you could read for people just to give them a? Yes. A sense of how the book is written.
3: Um, And one of the things, again, when you return to a book that you loved as a child, and I think also when we're children, we're less embarrassed about just reading the same thing over and over (laughs) and over. And I read this book until it fell apart. Mm -hmm. And then you don't read something for a long time and you realize that all the words are still there inside you. It's the most extraordinary thing. It it
2: has become part of you. That's right. And
3: so all of these descriptions, I already had the the pictures. I'd made the pictures long Mm. ago, and Mm. I just Mm. called them up again. And um, this is from when the the mermaid um, comes to live with the hunter, Um, but she has to adjust to life on land. They first have to learn to, to talk to each other. Um, And then uh, they have to figure out how they can bridge their differences. And she likes to bring him things from the sea. The best thing she brought them was a ship's figurehead they put up over the door. It was all covered with barnacles and clams and mussels. But when they had scraped those off, you could see the paint even. It was a woman with bare breasts and fair hair who clasped her hands behind her head. She wore a necklace of tiny blue flowers and had a garland of big flowers around her thighs. But her legs and feet weren't a woman's at all, but the furry, delicate, sharp-hooved legs of a deer or goat, and they were crossed at the ankles as if the bowsprit that she held up with her head were no weight at all for her. Her cheeks were rosy, as if the wind of the ship's sailing had flushed them, and her blue eyes stared out past you at something far away more even than she hated cooked things the mermaid hated anything sweet once the hunter persuaded her to try some berries she sniffed uncertainly at them put them in her mouth and then spat them out exclaiming they're ugly ugly all gummy and blurry how can you eat them And, um, you know, I think that's such a, just those two paragraphs um, give a sense of his clear, beautiful description, but also the kind of poetic resonances Mm -hmm. that he sets up in the way this figurehead echoes the mermaid without it ever being said that she's a woman. We don't hear a yeah. great deal in the story about the lower half yeah, yeah. of the mermaid, mm-hmm. except that she is a mermaid. But here is this divided woman. And then there are just these wonderful differences that he imagines that you would never have eaten anything sweet if you mm. always lived under the sea. And again, I think the thing about... a. Real poetry is when it sounds like something you always knew. So, the taste of berries as blurry. Yeah, I think is blurry. so Great. wonderful. Uh, he's, he's so precision. good
2: as well at setting up that um, you never, you never go with her into the sea. No. Though she's that she, you're told that she visits uh, and spends time with her kind back in the sea. And that it's but quite dull, because it never changes. Yes, yeah, it's the so good. Uh, and she, uh, I mean, contrast, it makes you think, right. I mean, it's remarkable. And the precision, I mean, you know, obviously he, 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 he is a poet, so that the, the descriptions have a precision to them, which is, which is remarkable. W- but also, he's not going to help you, you know, you, you, you have to, which I'm sure is why it's such a, uh, such a, a kind of a, a book that will last, because you have to do the work yourself, you have to mm-hmm. fill in the gaps. I love also, this a little bit that I was reading earlier, about, we were talking about that sense, slight sense that he is different. At the beginning, at least, they're, they're different. Whenever anything reminded the hunter of his father and mother, you could see that he missed them and longed to have them alive again. The mermaid would tell him about her childhood and her family and her sister, the dead one, but she never seemed to want any of it back. The hunter said, puzzled, don't you wish your sister were still here? The mermaid answered, she was then. Why do you want her to be now, too? Mm. The hunter That's remembered great. that he'd never seen the mermaid cry. He thought with a little shiver, do mermaids cry? Well, we learn later. I mean, part of the book is that it's, it was, it's so fascinating because there's one level at which, what's well, that great thing they say about the bear at one point? They say, oh, um, the bear is very good at just getting, he's got a real gift for getting along in the world, mm. the hunter said admiringly. Doesn't he look innocent and then the mermaid said to think we used to live without a bear <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's, it, it could be corny but I don't know he just manages to keep it in this uh, on this sort of remarkable level where you you totally buy the story even though as you say there's not much explanation but you realise that what's happening is that she's changing um, and the hunter is being changed as well I think by by her and the relationship with nature which on one level, you know, nature is unknowable. It becomes... <coughs> and both the lynx and the bear in different ways are sort of unknowable. But there's, it's, I, I have to say, uh, um, it is... Well, maybe we talk a little bit about the fact that it... Why isn't it better known in the UK? It's, it seems remarkable that it isn't. Uh, can I just share with you... I, I think you'll... I've, I've saved this for the recording, OK? <laughs> this is a... So when Fly By Nights came out in 1975, it and previous Jurell and Sendak collaborations were reviewed in the New York Times by John Updike. And um, the revu- Sendak was really unhappy about the review. Uh, but I won't... We'll get into why in a, in a little while. But I just want to read you a couple of things that Updike says about the animal family to get your reaction to it. See what you think. Erica, particularly. Okay. <laughs> The writing in The Animal Family is exquisite, and all of Jerrell's little juveniles are a cut above the run in intelligence and unfaked feeling. The longest and best of Jerrell's children's books, The Animal Family, holds no formal poetry, but most intensely presents his habitual themes of individual lostness, of estrangement within a family, of the magic of language, of the wild beauty beyond our habitations. A hunter living alone in the forest makes his way to the shore and begins to converse with a creature of the sea called a mermaid, but in fact a female seal. He appears to marry her. She certainly shares his bed and does his housework, though Maurice Sendak, who decorates the book with landscapes, was not called upon to depict her dragging her flippers through these connubial duties. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a response from Sendak in a minute. It's a a disquieting match. As if jor had taken literally Ruthka's lovely erotic line, she'd more sides than a seal. As in Fly By Night, the mother's role is flooded with strangeness and a male child's egotism is grotesquely served. The hunter-seal couple adopt first a bear, then a lynx, and finally a little boy found alive in a rowboat with his dead mother. With the acquiescence of his four footed siblings, the human child takes over the prime place in the animal family and is told by his adopted mother in her liquid accent that he has been with them always. With this lie, the book ends. <laughs> <laughs> to Jerrell's vision of bliss, adoption by members of another species seems intrinsic. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> And that was the most positive part of the review. I mean, he loves the he loves the review, but he's he's adopting. Giraud was a critic, and Giraud famously was a critic yeah. who Indeed. was very well respected, but also could be mean. Yeah, you know, w- was was willing saw it as part a, of the critical apparatus to be horrible I have a I have wonderful
3: um, I have a wonderful line uh, quote from John Berryman <laughs> about Giraud um, as a critic. He wrote that Giraud's reviews did go beyond the limit. They were unbelievably cruel, that's true. <laughs> he hated bad poetry with such vehemence and so vigorously that it didn't occur to him that in the course of taking a part, where he'd take a book of poems and squeeze like that twist, that in the course of doing that, there was a human being also being squeezed.
2: There you go. And of, co- and of course, Carl well, we're going to talk a little bit about Jarrell's life and... Um, Sad um, death as well, but he, it's widely believed he was undone by a bad review of one of his books. Yeah. Yeah. yes, and, and his and his, and and his last Times, book right? was
3: um, uh, was largely badly reviewed. Um, so,
2: how do you feel about the, those Updike shows? Updike kind of classic Updike muscular sort of praising you in a kind <laughs> of <laughs> a well, kind of I suppose harsh to way. me
3: that review. Although, I mean, it 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 draws attention to how this uh story has a similarity to um a selkie yeah. s- story um the line between mermaids and selkies who are seal people um, uh is a thin one but i i think that's wrong um because selkies um are are human yeah. on land and then they are seals when they return to mm-hmm. the water. And the mermaid is always a mermaid. Um, so, And usually, um, or you know, sometimes, the person who is romantically involved with a selkie is either deceived or has captured yeah. the selkie, takes the seal skin. Um, and, but the mermaid is willing. The mermaid chooses to come on shore. Um, so I would argue that (laughs) Updike's reading of the story is pretty fundamentally misplaced. Um, you know, but has, it's a, it's a familiar, um, diminishment Hmm. because it comes in the line of people who wish to argue that, Stories that take this shape, the shape of folklore, the shape of fairy tale, are uh, somehow lesser
2: yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: than the kinds of stories that great individuals such as John Updike can invent out of their <laughs> yeah. own brains yeah, 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 yeah. without well, I help. Tell
2: you, I enjoyed this a lot more than about half a dozen Updike novels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I do love Updike, but I mean, you know, he was capable of writing. Yes. J- and also the lie. Let's. Go, I need to go back to the yeah, book. Yeah, that's that very is, interesting. That a, I think that's a. I mean, that is a really. That's a very reductive reading of that isn't last it? line. Seems to me to be one of the. the it's a mm-hmm. magnificent.
1: It's a, it's a mechanistic reading of the book. Yes, yeah.
2: I mean, it? what it's because it's about it's about parent. It, he's right about it, it. Is about parents and children. It's about that that what. Wherever they come from, that the, the child-shaped hole within us, or whatever, is is something we we carry around as almost as a sort of birthright. What's interesting is it, that's the line that comes from the mermaid, not not from the, the hunter. But you know, Erica, you were saying about Geraldine, being this this um, this thing about dreams and fables. You know, there's uh, our friends at the um, NYRB, the New York Review of Books, have republished a volume called Randall Jarrell's Book of Stories, um, which I'd never heard of, which i bought when I knew we were going to be talking about this. And it has a brilliant essay at the beginning where Jarrell tries to define what he thinks a story can do at its best. And one of the things that he says about it is a story contains a, a kind of fluid mixture of things that will appeal to the mind, the body and the spirit. And he then proceeds to select a series of stories by uh, Elizabeth Bowen, um, Rilke, um, Kafka, which, which operate in that zone of not quite literal sense, but creating this incredibly atmospheric sense of dread or fear or love or disappointment it's the most fantastic I strongly recommend it to people who are listening Amazing. to this book it's, it's such a clever way of approaching a volume of short stories and um, I found a little quote as well about he loved Kafka, I think Kafka was if not his favourite writer, one of his favourite writers and it applies, this applies to <coughs> the stories and the poetry but the criticism as well this, this, there's a phrase in here I absolutely love he says, Kafka's whole method is rooted in the immense complication of our whole society. The perfect calm, the dispassionate rigor that might be called either scientific or classical, clothe an insight too profound ever to be blinded by indignation. In Kafka, there is an unexampled extension of the methods of comedy to the material of tragedy. Kay is seeking for salvation, for truth. Joseph Kay for justice, for his very life. Their search is presented with the utmost possible concern and intensity, and yet Kafka's method of treatment, his whole attitude, makes us see at the same time that the details are somehow comic, that the whole, looked at in one way, is itself comic. It is absurd not to call the world evil, and it is impossible to take the condemnation seriously. Either laughter or tears are impossibly inadequate. We have for it only the stare we give Medusa's head. I mean, I think that's... First of all, to acknowledge how funny Kafka is, thumbs up for that. But also, that that concluding line there, we have for it only the stare we give Medusa's head. We look at what's going to happen. We we take it as truthfully as we can and before we turn to stone. What an amazing thing to say. That line,
3: I think that, you know, that line... Where uh, comedy uh, both comedy and tragedy are possible uh, is very unsentimental and one of the things I I love about this book is I think it is unsentimental mm. um, while it's warm um, of course it's warm there are there are elements in it um, that have that again the sort of Plain brutality yeah, of yeah. the fable, and I think that's something. Um, you know, I think it's worth talking about um, Maurice Sendak a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is something. Um, although, again, when I was, um, you know, when I came to this as a as a child, I don't think I was even aware that these wonderful drawings um, were by the mm-hmm. same person who wrote. Where the wild things are. I well, this, only this came to appreciate. This book was published in 1965.
2: Yes. And Where the wild things are is sixty. It's the same kind of time. Sixty-three. Yeah. It's I the think. controversial author of Where the Wild well, Things that's Are. That's right. Because we were talking about earlier on when Where the Wild Things Are is first published. It's, yes. It's not scandalous. That's wrong. But. But there's a, f- a famous review in Publishers Weekly that says, "Well, the illustrations are marvelous, but don't leave your child alone with the book, because right. <laughs> it will give them terrible nightmares." But the
1: style of writing in that book—you could almost lift any sentence out of it and it would fit perfectly into a Maurice Sendak book. Yes, I
3: think. yes. Should I suppose like, the sentences uh, the, maybe the are maybe a little longer. The yes. illustrations yes. are
2: pretty wonderful. Yes, They're amazing. Can I? Mean, I d- some of them. Are th- that's a bear, isn't it? Don't you think? Ah, well. Can I just? I'm going to just read you from an interview with Sendak. Oh yes about this book, The Animal Family. Um, He had refused on a first reading to consider doing the artwork. Quote, It seemed to me impossible and dangerous. There are certain books I cannot illustrate, books which, in my opinion, should never be illustrated. This was one of them, because the images were so personal and so graphically created in the writing that Jarrell didn't need me. We discussed the book together, and he still wanted something of my contribution, though he believed what I said. So we decided not to illustrate the book but to decorate it, which is in fact the word we did use. Rather than try to depict anything specific, I thought of his book almost as if each chapter represented a different theatrical setting. These settings were my personal landscapes of what jor was talking about. There is nothing animate in them. Some readers claim to see animals and other creatures, (laughs) even people. But nothing of the kind is there. They are simply black-and-white landscape settings for each chapter of the book. Um, and then he goes on to say, um, we should also say that this book is 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 um the type is set very small and central on each page. Yes,
3: there's a lot of um, white
2: space. Um, so so the 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 second way in which this particular work was illustrated had to do with design. The book is about family, not having and then having a family on an island. Sendak and Jarell decided to place the text in small contained blocks at the centre of each page. Quote The words would then look like a tight little island, Sendak explained. Surrounded by extremely wide white margins representing the world outside, the squarish fat shape of the book itself became the family's little house.
1: That's so wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? That That is brilliant. That is great.
2: Um, you know, so the the idea, the idea that everything was so carefully considered... Yeah. Um, in Fly by Night, which is the other book that I have here, that um, that was not published for ten years after his, death. Uh, after his death. Although he had finished the manuscript, Sendak couldn't find a way that he was happy with illustrating it. And he talks about how he didn't want to... Um, um, do a disservice to it, he thought it was so full of potential and so full of what Jarrell would have wanted that he had to wait till he could find a way to do it and actually it 's the illustrations for that book that Updike is particularly unkind about, um, and we would have a stronger rebuff to Updike had we time <laughs> um, to do that um, i know times getting on. we do want to hear this little clip don 't we yes okay so so the poetry so we 're talking about Gerrell, he was a critic. He was a poet, and um, um, Stephen Burt said of his poetry that Jarrell's best-known poems are poems about the Second World War, poems about bookish children and childhood, and poems in the voices of ageing women. (laughs) Um, And we have a clip here from Jarrell reading at the 92nd Street Y in New York. In April 1963... Uh, two weeks I looked it up two weeks before Bob Dylan plays the New York Town Hall <laughs> this is how what a thing of history this is so we have a little clip um, of uh, Jarrell reading an excerpt from a poem called The Street of Sunset and it's about a little boy reading a copy of Amazing Stories magazine and being gripped by it.
0: That night... As I like, crossways in an armchair reading amazing stories. And there's a long parenthesis, and may I can make a little motion to show where the parenthesis starts and then finally stop it? So here the child is in an armchair reading American amazing stories. Just as long before I'd lie by my rich uncle's polar bear on his domed library's reflecting floor in the last year of the First World War and see a poor two-seater being attacked by four triplanes on the cover of the literary digest and the camel coming to its aid. I'd feel the bear's fur warm and rough against me. The colors of the afternoon would fade. I'd reach into the bear's mouth and hold tight to its front tooth and think, I'm not afraid. That's the end of the parenthesis. There, off sunset, in the lamplit starlight, a scientist is getting ready to destroy the world. It's time for you to say good night, Mama tells me. I go on in breathless joy. Remember, tomorrow is a school day, Mama tells me. I go on in breathless joy. Oh, oh, isn't that perfect. great!
3: It, it is. It is great. I'm. I'm slightly distracted by how much he sounds like Big Bird. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: when the poetry dried up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: But it's you know what's wonderful about that, or very striking now, um, to hear that poem is there's a bear. Yeah. In that poem. Absolutely. And when I was. Um, Again, when you encounter a book as a child, you think that's the only thing that that author has probably ever done. Um, So it wasn't until much later that I encountered uh, Jarrell as a poet. And again, I think he's very little known here. Mm. But I know that people do read, I think, his most famous poem, very short, um, which I have here. Um, is The Death of the Ball Turret Gunner, which is only five lines long. From my mother's sleep I fell into the state and I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from earth, loosed from its dream of life, I woke to black flack and the nightmare fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose.
2: Amazing, mm.
3: but there's the mm-hmm. fur. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, yeah. and and the dreams.
2: Yeah. Um. But he—it's very sad because he has. So he has this career as a, a a poet and a critic, and he's seen as being incredibly important. And he's an academic. He wins the National Book Award in 1960, and then he he uh, unravels. Depression. I mean, I dep- think. Yeah. He, he, uh, there's a, a poignant. Uh, story. His mother says to him, "in in shortly before he dies, you know that don't make mountains out of molehills." And he said, um, "When you're depressed, there are no molehills," which uh, is a pretty mm. good but sad. And I mean, the he there was an open verdict, wasn't there, whether or not it, the, the car that hit him had, it was an accident or suicide. But the people who knew him well, his wife is conv- his wife was convinced that he didn't commit suicide. Yeah. People who knew him well com- equally convinced that he did. Yeah. And and but he and was fifty-one. I mean, he was young. Yes. Yeah, relatively. He was young.
3: Um, and I f- th- think Al Alvarez was one of the yeah, first yeah. people to include him. I think he was included in the Savage God as uh, artists who had committed suicide. Mm.
2: But, um, but also, arguments still go on. But he also wrote, we, we have a, I, I think this is fine, we, you know, he also wrote a novel entitled Pictures from an Institution, which is a campus novel. That came out in 54. So that's like three years before Penin, the great yeah. uh, Nabokov campus novel. So, um, Matthew, do you have a tenuous link to anyone or anything to do with the animal family?
1: Well, luckily I do.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so my tenuous link is Brian Selznick. The ah. wonderful oh, yes. author of um, The Invention of Hugo Cabaret and uh, The Marvels and Wonderstruck, who I have been lucky enough to get to know a little bit from working at Port Elliot, Yes, which he yes. That always comes to. And he, in turn, was kind of mentored by Maurice Sendak, Maurice Sendak, and was a fan of. Of Randall's chooses the 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 translation of the Brothers uh, Grimm regularly as one of his favourite kids books. Ah, yeah. Um, But this is something. So in two thousand and eight, Brian won the Caldecott Prize, the kids Mm -hmm. book prize in America, and he gave a fantastic speech. It's another acceptance speech. I'm doing a little quote from, and Brian. Within this speech quotes an essay by Remy Charlip called A Page is a Door. And he's talking about the, the, the way that picture books work. And I just want to read this out because it's kind of wonderful. So this is from Remy Charlip quoted by Brian Selznick. And it goes like this, it goes, A book is a series of pages held together at one edge. And these pages can be moved on their hinges like a swinging door. Of course, if a door has something completely different behind it, it's much more exciting. The element of delight and surprise is helped by the physical power we feel in our hands. When we first move that page or door to reveal a change in everything that has gone before in time, place or character... A thrilling picture book not only makes beautiful single images or sequential images, but also allows us to become aware of a book's unique physical structure by bringing our attention Mm. once again to that momentous moment—the turning of the page—which is kind of I think that wonderful. I think that really is that really makes you think of where the wild things are and the way the um, the bit in it where he says about um, that night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind. And that sentence is broken up, and the next mm. page says, and another. And another. And I think it mm. ends in a similar mm. way with the mm. meal left being, yes. and it was warm. It was still hot. And it, it was yeah. still hot, which, you know, is the uh, Brian talks about being, that's the moment of love, you know, that the, of the mother's love to the child and safety. And yeah. anyway,
3: But, anyway, but that also connects to uh, what you were reading that mm-hmm. Maurice Sendak said mm-hmm. about yeah, the design absolutely. and how yeah. important yeah. Um, the physical... Yeah. Aspect of a book is and I think particularly uh, for a child
2: yeah. Yeah. for all of yeah. us
3: but especially for children I should
2: just say that those quotes from Maurice Sendak by the way uh, were from Selma Lanes' brilliant book The Art of Maurice Sendak Maurice Sendak Maurice Sendak Maurice, Maurice. Uh, um, uh, which is a fantastic book both in terms of the, the quality of the illustration but also the, the, the content and the, and the amount that Sendak put into that book himself as well well, I think we're sort of getting to the end. I just wanted to say thank you, really, to Erica for, for alerting us to this. Mm, thank my you. pleasure. Remarkable and I'm, I'm delighted and, 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 to have been able to do And it is, I feel, I feel it's a book, when you... It is, it's one of those books that you, you'll carry with you forever. I, I, I um, just very finally just wanted to... Say the, the wonderful epigraph to the book, which is, say what you like, but such things do happen. Not often, but they do happen. <laughs> which That's uh, from... Um, that's from, I know because I've just read it, in in the book, Randall Jarrell's Book of Stories, that's the last line of The Nose by Gogol. Really? Say what you like, but such things do happen. Not often, but But they they do do happen. A bit like backlisted, (laughs) (laughs) eh? Not often, but but from a good place. Uh, Thanks to Erica Wagner. To Matthew Clayton, of course, to our producer, Matt Hall, to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter, ba- at BacklistedPod, on Facebook, Backlisted Pod page, and on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk. Unbound. Unbound.co.uk unbound. <laughs> forward slash backlisted. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Bye. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.